good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever in the world you might be. I am Nicole Beasy, and you know everything. Today we're doing a wonderful conversation. I am so excited to introduce you all to Sarah Yarling. I think I'm going to call you Sarah the Salary Saver or Sarah the Salary Ooh. Savior. That's certainly what, and and I, like, look, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but when I first met you, I absolutely underestimated you. And there was like quiet Sarah who introduced herself and it was intimidating. And then, and then there was Sarah who was a few minutes late to a meeting and she was like, oh guys, I'm sorry. I'm negotiating a $40 million salary right now. And I was like, oh, head swivel, what? <laughs> like, and then you really started opening up and I got to discover a little bit about who you are, where you've come from, some of the things you've worked on, your recent story, an absolute transformation, your phoenix rising from the ashes. And of course, we were introduced by Angel Phoenix. So I like to give thanks and credit where credit is due. But I usually like to start out these conversations by asking someone's origin story. And I let you choose, is that how this conversation came to be or how you found yourself sitting here today. Right now you're actually in Florida. Typically you're in Boston. So even that origin story is pretty interesting. So Sarah, I'll let you take it from here. Sure. So yes, I think that the core of my origin story does have to do with physical locations. And I'm so thrilled to be here with you today. And yes, I'm, I'm in Pensacola, which, you know, I started out my my life in the in the south and my family my favorite my favorite people are from the south or detroit so shout out to detroit but yeah so it's all my swamp witches or detroit (laughs) absolutely it's probably where that you know meek energy you first came because i think too like the women in the south are very soft but very strong underneath and so i think part of that explains too just how i present in the world but it's interesting i grew up in atlanta but my parents were both from the panhandle of florida and you know early early life was you know all of our childhood dramas, divorce, moving around a lot, all of that. But I almost felt like I was far away from my communities because they were in the port of Panhandle, but we were in Atlanta. But I had this heart desire to go north too. So I think what that led me to is this intense desire for community and being a part of something, which once I moved to Boston, I thought I had found. I thought I had found the safety, the community. I immediately... went entered into a very serious relationship ultimately got married really just threw myself head first into a community where i i felt it was just the definition of total safety it was a very established community i quickly realized that that safety was an illusion and that you really need to internally resource yourself and be very discerning with um building that community. Community was the important part, but you had to be a little bit more, or I had to be a little bit more discerning. And the same thing was going on professionally in the sense that I went into the world of executive recruiting, which to me, I consider or call really matchmaking because it's a lot of the same. You are connecting companies to people. And At the level of which we were doing so, I was placing the chief financial officers and the general counsels 
for companies. So my client was the company, not necessarily the individuals. And what a business needs at a certain time is highly specific. So there's typically Mm -hmm. only, Mm -hmm. you know, there can be only five people in the world who can do a job. So it's not as simple as going and finding that person, you know, needle in the haystack. And then, then you have to convince them. (laughs) Then you have to build a relationship with them and true intimacy with them in order to, you know, make the connection. And there's this undercurrent of energetics and relationship because you have a relationship with them and they have to build a relationship with the CEO. And anyways, I just realized that you had to apply that same discernment and and almost judgment in a mm. way, even though it took me a long time to reframe the okay. fact that I judge people for a living. <laughs> and yes, through that, you end up negotiating a whole lot of salaries. So I think to combine that, I think my mission, or I don't think I know my mission in the world, is to be that matchmaker of people to people and people to more money and to help with the compensation and self-worth journey, but also to help businesses find their people. That is incredibly powerful. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to backtrack a little bit though, because yes. one of the things that struck me, firstly, you've just started your own company, correct? Correct. And so, but you've been working in this industry for almost two decades? Yes, exactly. And you're like, definitely not even 40 yet. (laughs) So like one of the things you told me is like fresh out of school. So at the like ripe age of, I'm assuming 21, 22, you found yourself in some pretty startling places. Can you just tell our listener a little bit about that and how you managed to, as a young woman... And, and oftentimes the only woman in the room and probably 30 years, if not more younger than every other person. Like how the fuck did you do that? It was terrifying. And okay. it was terrifying every single time. I think first I wanted to, I was an observer a lot of the time at the very beginning, the very beginning. And I, I watched how people talked. I watched what language they mm. they would use. I quickly got rid of my slight Southern accent and stopped saying, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, because it was offensive to the communities that we were in. So I was modeling behaviors, but I also think I, I was in a very supportive environment with a team that pushed me past my comfort zone. And it was, you either rise or you you don't. And some e- examples of that would be, you are interfacing with the leaders of incredibly large, incredibly complex businesses. And yes, they are much more experienced and and intimidating. And most of them went to an Ivy League school and are live financial realities that are entirely different than my own. So part of it was just dressing the part, making sure that, you know, even if I was only wearing Banana Republic, that I still looked put together and my language matched their language and that I practiced listening. And then when I was pushed out of my comfort zone, you just have to try. You have to do it. So whether that is, you know, present to you know a Federal Reserve Board and present why a candidate should be considered to be a Fed president, whether it's that or choosing a you know wine at a dinner with executives when you know nothing about wine and the idea of 
you know, a $400 wine just seems outrageous to you. And you have to select which one the entire table is going to drink. So you just do it (laughs) and you hope for the best. And sometimes it works and most of the time it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's interesting. You describe that as a supportive environment. That sounds like sink or swim. That sounds like fire, trial by fire. How did you reframe that so that it felt encouraging? I didn't think I would be asked to do something they did not believe I was capable of doing. And that gave me the confidence that I didn't have on my own. And so it felt supportive in a really backwards way. No, that's an incredible reframe. I've learned that a little bit older, but yeah, I was in my late 20s and asked to participate in this program and I won't get into it. But I remember like writing the letter to say, I I am declining this invitation. And someone was like, are you dumb? (laughs) And kind of presented (laughs) me with that same reframe. Like, these are the people you've looked up to forever. They invited you. Like, do you think Mm -hmm. they would do that? And like by mistake. And so I think that's incredibly powerful and will absolutely support someone. Someone out there needed to hear that. So thank you. So why the leap? Why spend this many years working in executive recruitment for somebody else and then decide I'm going out on my own. That it was a a heartbreaking and really exciting decision all at at once. Mm-hmm. What I started to notice was patterns in terms of what was really successful at the highest level, at the Fortune 10 company levels for these financial institutions and private equity firms that were incredibly successful. And their strategy is not rocket science. (laughs) They have portfolios of 10 companies and they they expect one to be incredibly strong and make them a lot of money. And if one or two fail, then, you know, it's balanced out. Their their risk is hedged, but they, they typically do really well. At least the prominent ones that I was exposed to did. And some of the indicators for success and the wealth that I saw, I thought, could be in the hands of my peers. And part of that was was learning how to negotiate. That was probably the first thing I did. And I started experimenting with my own compensation and with that of my friends and helping them reposition themselves. And it worked. But the, the idea wasn't I want to make more money, even though it was, or they wanted to make more money. It was almost like we wanted to increase our collective purchasing power so that we could change the world together, which is very we community focused. But at the executive level, like for those financial institutions and, you know, Fortune 10 companies, they have a similar mindset. They all own portions of each other's businesses. The whole the whole world is owned by a very small group of people and they do it because they have that same same framework. But I wanted to bring that to my friends, my community, people that I respect. It's not it's not rocket science. <laughs> like you can you can figure it out. And so I wanted to create a small economy of women CEOs where We can kind of take some of that modelings and learning, but still do it to our values and our mission and get paid and try to separate the ideas of self-worth versus compensation versus how much your business makes, but still make a lot of money. So there's a lot of facets for it. It started to look easy what they were doing. And I wanted to translate that easy to the community I think is coming up next in this world and the community that can 
in my opinion, change the world? Like why, why not? Um, okay. I'm like exploding with inspiration and excitement right now. Uh, I can tell you are too. You've got that lapel mic on. And so just, yeah. Yeah. So for our listener, sorry, not sorry. There's going to be some motion and some noise. You don't, yeah. I don't even want you to worry about it. Um, I just need our listener to be like, it's cool. I'm dealing with somebody who's changing the actual world and going to take the secrets from that, the 1% of the 1% and distill them to everybody making it more accessible. Oh my God. I hope everybody gets to hear this conversation. And I've got goosebumps right now because I've had this conversation with so many solopreneurs, creatives, artists, startups, business owners. They think there's some secret sauce. And like I was speaking with one of my clients who is building metaverses and doing all sorts of exciting things in Web3. And they were like struggling with finances. Cash flow was hard. And I was like, I just so you're aware. (laughs) And you know, he's like, I I think I just need to get a mentor here. I need to find somebody there. And I was like, this is what happens at billion dollar private equity firms. They do a profit and loss statement. They do a cash flow statement and they do a balance statement and they review it quarterly and they look at variances. And when something's changed, they're like, what's up with that? And he was like, well, yeah. And I was like, no, that's it. That's really all that's happening. Like (laughs) we're, we're looking at numbers and we're just comparing it. And that's why like, I bring these ratios and, and all of this data to people because it's not a secret. It's not sexy. It's very simple. And just understanding what numbers you're looking at, and it actually doesn't fucking matter. Just pick three and then just notice what happens over time. But you're so right. What the ones in charge are doing is what they do best over and over and over again. And I think the only difference is, is when you have a lot of money, it makes a lot of money. <laughs> like yes. you can effectively resource, you can effectively hire, you can, to your point, look for exactly what it is that you need in that moment of time. And when that's not what you need anymore, then you find a different solution for it. There's no attachment. And that's what I found so fascinating about some of these $40 million salaries and salary packages is these leaders are doing like three-year contracts. And if they don't hit their numbers, they don't fulfill their three-year contract and they still get paid. And I was like, wait, what? And it's just, it's such a specific vision. But I want to talk about like, it sounds like observation is your secret sauce. And by watching what's happening, and I, and I think, and actually I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. We'll get into what you think people do best and how people set themselves up for success in organizations. Absolutely for sure. But what do you see some of these leaders, some of these, you know, big dick energies walking into room? Like, what do you see them doing wrong? I often think that, again, leaders are typically very good at staying in their lane and doing and leaning into what they're really strong at and really good at, which sometimes is the financial side and sometimes is is not. It's the sales and business development and relationship side. And I think when you get to the tippity top, you you have to know what you don't know. Mm. But more than that, you have to trust. And the most successful leaders that I know are actually willing to trust others. They know who can be their, I've watched way too much Game of Thrones, but who can be their like hand of the king. They, they know who can operate and what their skill set is and what they can do. And I think where they sometimes stumble is when they're really good at one thing, but they think they have to because they're 
having to take absolute responsibility for the entirety of the world, but they're just quite frankly, not good at the entirety of the world. So I think it comes down to being able to build trust and build connection and have true intimate relationships. And that's the definer. Trust. That's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I have like a thousand million questions. Okay. But so one of the angles I kind of like to take and sort of explore is like, what is your art? And to me, that means what is, what makes you unique? How do you tap into your own trust so that you can do what you do best? And you described, it started out as just observing and then it started out as modeling. And I think this is an incredibly powerful strategy for anybody starting anything, anytime you watch, you pick out the strongest players that you respect, the ones that you think are doing it in a way that gets the results you would want. And then you research, you pattern, you model, you figure out what do they do? Where are they? How do they dress? How do they talk? What books do they read? What events do they go to? Who do they surround themselves with? So on and so forth. And so from there, you can synergize and actually start to create your own way of working, your own patterns. And you said you did that by actually testing. What was that moment for you when you realized, oh, I've like, I've got this and I have my way and it works. I think again, it was being validated by others when Mm. I, so I left my, the company that I was at in order to go actually join a startup and one of the companies that I had been helping as an outside consultant. Mm-hmm. And so I went into that organization and, and that was an incredibly powerful experience for me to be a part of the business as opposed to just the advisor to the business. So I would not change that experience for a lifetime, but that's you know, a story for another day. But Throughout that those two and a half or three years that I was away, my team, the CEOs I had worked with, they remained in touch. They remained you know, close. And part of that was because of my efforts to you know, retain the connection. But part of it was just them. They didn't forget about me. And when it was time for me to go back, it took one phone call and I had an offer within six hours. And I they they recognized how successful I was in the role that it wasn't it wasn't hard. It was hard for me mentally, but it wasn't hard to make that transition back in. So just having their confidence gave me the confidence. But that's not sustainable because you can't rely on the confidence of others to power your own. So I think I had to go behind beyond that and do a lot of inner work and a lot of spiritual growth. And I went through a lot personally as well to get to a place where my confidence, like, yeah, that helps the confidence, but that's not the the source of it. Because if that was the source of it, never would I have been able to start my own company or take this leap because there's nobody, I'm trying to create a world that doesn't necessarily exist yet. So there's nobody there to tell me that I'm going to succeed at it other than myself. So it's a little bit of a different flavor now. Yeah. It feels to me like you're describing the difference between confidence and trust. Like confidence is believing you can do it. Trust is it's already done. And so you, you mentioned, and sorry, I got sidetracked on this one. So the, where you started testing was negotiating and you started testing by negotiating your own salary. And so it sounds like, like your confidence wasn't just the validation of others, but the actual results that you were getting for you and for the people that you were placing. And the fact that those people wanted to stay in touch with you, that's what I always say is the proof in the pudding. When someone wants to keep working with you and they have a numerous 
options to go and work somewhere else. Like that to me is when I'm like, okay, we're doing a good job here. And so how did you like, let me rephrase, what would you be willing to share some of your negotiation techniques? Absolutely. And the most interesting part is this information is readily available. Mm -hmm. There are so many organizations that will tell you what to do and they're not wrong. I think what is missing and what my secret sauce, I guess you would say, is, is that, is that observation place. I think there's a lot of advice on what you should say and how you should say it and how you should prepare and what you, you should do. And I think that is all very, very accurate. I would tell you to do the same, same things. That's the basics. But I think what people miss and where they miss is that they don't consider where we are in a cycle, where the business is going. I think the most, like a good example, I actually made a post about this recently, is probably, I don't know, I was pretty early in my career. I thought I was underpaid. I was getting really resentful. Mm. And I think a I was, lot of people can relate to that. Yes. And that's a killer. Like, there's nothing that'll make you unhappy faster than resentment, at least in my mm-hmm. opinion. A resentment is literally a killer. Like it will fester and inside mm. of you and make you sick. And yeah, it's it's not an okay energy to tolerate. Exactly. But for some reason, I had it in my head that if I was as great as everybody was saying I was, that they would pay me, <laughs> like that I would be compensated for that yeah. because I'm proving myself. So in some disjointed way, I thought I had to really go even do do more, be better, even mm-hmm. though I was the top performer, like do better. And so I set it in my head. I set an outrageous goal and was like, as soon as I hit this goal, I'll ask. Can I ask, was the goal for you, was your metric placements or was it salary? It was placements. It was okay. placements, wow. but it was yeah. also... I mean, my personal goal was to get people paid. And right. I think there's a, you know, the industry, we can talk about the industry at some point. It's really fascinating. It's almost a conflict of interest because we get paid a third of somebody's salary. So yeah. it's the, in our business's best interest to get the person more money. So it is, you know, my interest and the candidate's interest are aligned. And so, of course, I'm going to advocate for them in the best way possible, but also protect my client and my client is, you know, who we're serving and mm-hmm. they're the one paying me. So at the end of the day, I'm have to do well by them. And so it's a balance. And I think that's, you know, it's another thing. It's a balance. So to bring it back a little bit to my story, when I first asked for more, because I'm, you know, advocating on you behalf hit your of target. my candidates. Yeah. So I hit my target. I accomplished yeah. that goal. So I guns blazing, you know, read all the blogs. I knew what to say because I negotiate salaries all the time. Stomped into my boss's office and was like, pay me. (laughs) Well, this was the financial crisis. Like if I had asked before I had made up my imaginary, you're worth it, he would have just been like, sure, here you go. Yeah, you're right. You're underpaid. Um, But no, I I asked when the world was falling apart and they had just laid off 40% of the workforce. And he didn't say you should be appreciative of a job. He was like, your job is very safe. You're their top person. Don't worry. However, no, (laughs) you're not, you're not getting a raise. Like, are you crazy? The business is is struggling. And so 
just paying attention to the the cycle, paying attention to what the business is doing and when. If you're advocating for a raise during your performance review, it's too late. Do you know? Yeah, most people don't even know what the fiscal year for their company is. It's not always December to December. It's often July to June. June, yeah. yeah, so you you have to just be aware, and those data points are very easy to find out. It doesn't take much effort to figure out what the fiscal schedule of your company is, but it matters with the timing of when you're going to ask. It matters what your earnings call said. It matters if your boss is worried about their job. I think you just you can't talk yourself out of asking by using these as indicators that you know it's never a good time. Mm-hmm. You, but you have to be informed so that you can change your approach. So you can't use it as an excuse. It just has to inform. Right. You know, it's so what I'm hearing you say is so often we advocate for ourselves from a place of value and worth. Like I'm doing all of this, so I should get that. Or I'm worth all of this, so I should be paid that. But what you're saying is it actually has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with what's happening externally. <laughs> so you're not advocating for your worth or value at all. You're just looking for the right time and the right context to position yourself in a place that says, let's level up. Let's create an opportunity for everybody here. And it's such an interesting, and like, I would find that really empowering. I wish there was somebody I could negotiate to pay me more, but it's just me. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it, that is such a powerful shift because when you're there, it's difficult to separate yourself from that, like a kind of neediness or, mm-hmm. or even like hope when you think what you're arguing for is how much you're worth. And we all know like we're priceless and you could never, you could never pick an actual dollar amount that represents what you deserve or what you should be paid. It's just an agreement on exchange. And that's all, like what I'm hearing again is just that exchange is completely a timing issue and like align yourself with the organizational goals, pick a good time. Know when the, know when the budgets are, are not just being like discussed, but planned. And that's when we go in and it has actually nothing to do with you at all, which might actually hurt some people's feelings, but wow, that is definitely a secret sauce, Sarah. That is incredibly powerful. Well, thank you. But I loved what you said about the energy of it as well. Mm. Because not only is that if you come at it based on your worth, I mean, you have to be doing a good job. That's like the baseline, of course. Of course you are. But however, if you come at it, if you're placing it based on how you feel about yourself and your worth, you're right. That's It's energetically not a good feeling, I think, for the recipient of it. But then you have to think of who the recipient is. Yes. And typically your manager or the CEO, they want to retain you. It creates so much more of a problem if you leave. And so what you're doing by asking them for a raise or what you're doing by resigning from their organization or quitting your job is creating a short-term problem for them. So if you offer the solution as part of your problem, then you overcome that obstacle because so many people ask for a salary and they're told some excuse that's like, oh, we're off cycle or it's not the right time, or it's just a problem that the manager doesn't want to deal with. But if you're trying to help them, 
And it's just a different reframe too. And energetically, it feels like uh, we're on the same team, not to do a sports reference, but like we're on the same team. This is not just a my worth issue. So I love that you picked up on that. Well, you've just, I mean, I think you've given people like a three-step process to create an incredible opportunity for themselves by creating an incredible opportunity for the organization. So firstly, just contextualize it. Secondly, like align yourself with organizational goals and timing. And then third, like make your boss look good. <laughs> like be right, the solution right. that they <laughs> they want to pay you for. So, I mean, incredibly simple. That's so, yeah. I'm, I, I mean, I would consider that your artistry. Do you consider yourself to be a creative person? A year ago, I would have said no, which is so interesting because my entire life I've been told I'm creative. My parents told me, teachers told me, my music, my brother to this day has reinforced it. But I've always just been like, no, I'm good at math, kids. Like, (laughs) I am not creative. I don't think so. But when I started to think about going out on my own and I started to have conversations with with people, with my current clients, I realized that I am pretty creative because I can connect to people that ordinarily wouldn't connect in order to create something more powerful than it would be separately. And nobody would have had the idea to do it. And if you walk into my home and just look around at the space, like I'm not a beige person. There's nothing beige about me. <laughs> so deck, Nothing's like wrong with beige, just for the record. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm in a very like nothing beige environment right now. <laughs> I love it. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. I walk into hotels that are beige and I think it's absolutely stunning. So this is no knock on that aesthetic <laughs> whatsoever. I think it's beautiful, but it's not my expression of my myself. And so just starting to pick up on the creative things that aren't defined, like, am I a painter? No. But do I create ideas out of nothing? Then then yes. And so I started to think I was a little bit more creative than I gave myself credit for. So I, I just because I think a lot of people listening will both be insa- inspired, but curious to know. So what was the moment? It sounds like like you really love what you do and you loved where you worked. So why, why did you go out on your own? But specifically, what was like the indicator? It's time this is happening. And if there's stuff you can't talk sure. about as well, cause I would imagine a lot of this is like pretty fresh, just knowing kind of the timing around mm-hmm. this, you don't have to get like super into it, but you know, was it, was it like a salary number or an energetic thing or did you get a nudge from the universe? Like, cause I think there's just, there's so many people that are in a good enough spot and oh, yes. so like why, you know, I was going to try and come up with one of those colloquialisms. If it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. <laughs> but yeah, so I'd love to hear kind of your timeline and story around that. Sure. Well, I'd start by saying like the, the sales type of role that I entered when I was part of that startup for that very short period of time, mm-hmm. it had that very much- A couple of years though, right? It was. It was. Okay. So Which is a long time, time for a startup. <laughs> like, that's well, I mean, they're a public company now and they're woo, they've, you they've gone on. do that. Ow. They owe you. And yes, but we How were, much of their staff did you place just out of curiosity? See, I was responsible for really Massachusetts, so hundreds of people. Wow. Uh, but Wow. And so this is a startup that went public and you basically hired their whole company. Not their whole company, no, because I was responsible for just a very small portion of because they're a national company. I was right. very focused on Massachusetts. Right. So okay. 
but here, yes, the our mandate was to grow market share from I guess it was a four or five percent to twenty percent yeah. by twenty. You know that it, that out. was the goal, and we Sorry. accomplished that really fast. Wow, um, that's incredible. All of the all of the leaders, my management team was coming from software sales, so they were coming from that. Salesforce type of world and community. And so we were taught by people who had been very successful, but it, it was kind of like a bro marketing type of, you know, so I welcome I didn't to like, tech. <laughs> welcome to tech. Yeah. So it, I didn't quite subscribe to it. Actually, I was quite off put by it, but I did take a few nuggets because again, observation is what, uh, <laughs> what step number one, people. Yeah. Step number one, watch. And one of the things that I was taught in those marketing techniques was that complacency is your biggest, is the biggest reason you're going to lose. It's not because somebody didn't like you or you didn't offer them enough money. It's complacency and fear. Huh. Okay. And that downloaded to me because I internalize everything. So I was just like, if I am going to not, like I have wild goals for my own personal life. And so I'm like, if complacency kills my deals, then complacency is going to kill my success. Wow. And what I'm excited by, because I'm a, a projector, I'm a Gemini, like I get excited about people's success. The people I'm excited by are you, they're Angel, they're Corey, they're the women that are being really brave Coco, they're, they're the women that are out there just doing things and they're doing it through community. They're doing it through connection, through willingness to get on that stage, even if it's scary or they look foolish from time to time, which you don't. You all look beautiful and well Crazy. <laughs> crazy. I definitely crazy. look crazy. Yeah. No. But women who embrace the delusional bits of us because that's our imagination and that's where we can create from. And that's who I was going on Instagram for hundreds of hours a day and just being a fangirl and just being like, oh my goodness. And so I'm not saying I fell out of love with the Fortune 100 world and those CEOs and those private equity firms. They're doing incredible work. I didn't fall out of love with them, but I fell in love with a different community. And I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to not be a part of it necessarily so my business could be the, the best, but I wanted to be a part of it so I could do my work in that community and build those connections. And then I had that little you know, thing on my shoulder saying complacency will mm. kill this. And yeah. I just, the complacency is the number one killer. Like that is just, if, if people take nothing away except for that line from this, it will change their entire lives. Okay. So I'm going to switch gears here because we've talked a lot about, well, what not to do some simple steps in order to change your entire career and trajectory and be really successful. I am a little curious, like what, what did you see some of the, the top tier companies or professionals and leaders doing that you were like, this is the pattern to model? I think they had access to information in a way that a lot of us don't, which is why I want to start talking about mm -hmm. it. So I appreciate mm -hmm. that question. But those individuals understood that what their business needed 
at different phases of the business life cycle were very, very different. And they were almost brutally willing to make the changes necessary at the times necessary. Mm, So, you know, very small example, a company needs financing. They decide they want to go the IPO route. They've had a couple of rounds of funding. Their investors are pushing for an exit. So you want to IPO. Well, it takes a different kind of CFO to lead that transaction. It takes somebody who has relationships with the banks. It takes It's just an entirely different job description. And even though the person who's been in the seat has gotten the company from zero to 500 million or zero to 20 million, whatever it is, it doesn't matter, the numbers, that person is sometimes not the person to take you there. Sometimes the founder and CEO is not the person to take the company there. They're just not. and But they're willing to know that they're not. They're willing to take a step back and they're willing to hire or meet or network or ask (laughs) in order to find the person that that is. So it takes a lot of self-awareness, but it also just takes a lot of access. Wow. Okay. It's funny. I was thinking of an old client of mine as a senior level VP at a Fortune 100 company. This is the classic example of someone hiring me so that they could start their own business. And then what we ended up doing was through coaching and that type of work, discovering like, and then he created the the most amazing job that didn't exist in this global conglomerate. And so they're still there. And, And hearing about this company, he was there for when it went public and then it went private again. You know, they hired one of the biggest, most well-known CEOs in the world and 18 months into their contract, let them go. And now they're, you know, they're going from private to public again. And just like the pivoting, and this company has reported 40% earnings quarter over quarter for the last three years, which is pretty impressive considering what's been going on. But, and they've only done one major layoff cycle. And that was right at the beginning of all of this change. And I just think... It's so easy to condemn these leaders for some of these decisions that they have to make. And everyone will be like, it's just all about the profits and all about the bottom line and the, you know, the decisions that they're making and how it impacts and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I think to your point, it's also this laser focus and this like belief and trust and knowing this is what I do best. This is my perspective through which I view the world. And mm-hmm. um, I've surrounded myself with people who I trust to do exactly what they need to do and what I rely on them to do. And they're making the decisions that they believe in. And even if that means in 18 months, they're no longer the right candidate, it's because the organization as a whole has decided to go in just a different direction. Yeah. It's like the analogy of like steering the container ship. (laughs) Like you're making like a one degree change and, you know, 30 miles down the road, you're going in a completely different direction, but it's scale. Like leadership at that size and that scale is just a completely different game that people are playing. And it's, it would be so those conversations and just getting to witness all of that just fascinates me to no end. So with that, when someone asks, what do you do? Or like, what is your work? What do you think the answer is to that question? I mean, the easiest, quickest top of mind one is that I'm an executive recruiter and I am reframing that as executive matchmaker because that makes sense. I help mm-hmm. to match make 
businesses to the resources they need. And usually that's a human resource, but oftentimes you can almost combine, like I have this one situation at my last company that I just left where I was doing a CFO search for both of those CEOs. And they're both earlier stage companies. Neither one of them really could afford their CFO quite yet. <laughs> so we weren't finding the talent that you know really would make a pivotal impact. But they were doing very similar things. They had similar values, similar missions. So it was more just a, why don't you two connect? And Fast forward 18 months, the companies have merged. They can afford their CFO. Wow. They have uh, very synergistic products. So it's almost matchmaking businesses to ideas, people, technologies. And by businesses, I mean women CEO (laughs) at this point because that's what I'm excited by. This is an obvious question, but let's play it through. Why the focus on women CEOs? because I'm so excited by what they're doing. And I'm not saying that there's not a, a man CEO or, or you know I, whatever you identify as. I don't want to be exclusionary, but I do think there's a lot of power and in a woman, a lot of depth, a lot of really serious, fiery energy that can make huge impact in the world, but they're not supported. I get mm. so angry at seeing you know, young mothers who are convinced, taught their entire life to have children, and then the second they have those children, there's zero infrastructure or support with them. Or women who open companies and start businesses, and they're doing it by themselves. And what that does is make them not trust others in a way that they will not delegate. Mm. I mean, it's mm. almost yeah. like part of this is just convincing the women I admire that like, they can get to that next level, but they're going to have to trust somebody, Yeah, <laughs> um, whether that's an investor or whether that's a number two or whether that – it doesn't matter who it is. I think they can do that and they're willing to do that and I want to help them do that. But I think we can create more together. And I, the ultimate goal is to create that small economy and to bring in some of my early finance knowledge and to, to help – with that, because you do need money to do a lot of the big things we have mm-hmm. to do, and the, mm-hmm. and it, and it's scary. But the other thing is, if we're women CEOs who are doing it all ourselves and not willing to trust, like what happens when our moms get sick? What happens when we have a really tough pregnancy? What happens if we have not diversified our our companies or our portfolios or brought in people that we can trust? You know, it'll all fall down. It'll crumble. And that's stressful and that's icky. So building a community and building an infrastructure that supports us, building an, an economy that supports us. I mean, that's a big goal. So, <laughs> but I like I'm big goals. so glad that I asked that question though, because I think you stumbled on something that isn't, I don't want to say it's not talked about enough. I actually think a lot of these discussions are happening but there isn't the the know-how and like the follow-up to like creating trust because trust isn't created overnight. Trust is, you know, I have, I'm sure you've heard this analogy before. It's like little, like it's like sand grains in a jar and all it takes is one crack for that jar to just 
open up and everything falls out and putting it back together again is a hell of a lot harder. <laughs> Just putting sand oh, into that absolutely. jar. And to your point, like I think women in order to be successful felt like they had to play their cards so close to their chest. They couldn't actually let anybody in. And I see this playing out. I experienced this 100%. And how do you build trust when you've been fucked over? And how do you build trust when if you like, and, and it was Randy Zuckerberg. And I remember when she tweeted this and it fired me up to no ends. She said, you can choose family, sleep, friends, fitness, or success. Pick three. And I was like, no, I want it all. And I chose not to have children and in my own, like in a business that I'm a partner in, my partner is a single mom and one of our employees wanted to, was having a child and I knew this and I was like, so we'll give them paternity leave. And my business partner was the one who fought me the strongest on it. And it was just, and like, no, like obviously he got paternity leave. We gave him three full months. And then I think he came back three months at part-time, but with the work that we do, we have a co-managed PTO policy anyway. So it was like very, very, very like actual part-time, but like very much on his schedule. But like the internalized misogyny, capitalism, wounding, distrust that my partner had to confront, my business partner had to confront just to just to get to the place where like this was something that she was in agreement with, let alone supportive of, just it like blew my mind. And of course, like as someone who hasn't ever had to for myself in terms of maternity leave, and as someone who worked in a country where both parents were entitled and businesses were reimbursed by the government to actually allow for full maternity leave and full paternity leave for up to six months. I cannot wrap my head around how this particular country does it. And what I am seeing though is the top, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you would absolutely know better. The companies that are in my opinion, doing it the best, who are truly leading, who are attracting the best talent, who are getting, you know, the solopreneurs and creativepreneurs to to quit working for themselves and, and get back into the job force are the ones that are taking on much more supportive, much more transparent organizational cultures where they're disclosing salaries. They're disclosing ascension plans and they are hiring very purposefully and prioritizing diversity and not just ethnic or cultural, but gender, because they understand a more diverse workforce is a stronger workforce. Like the data is out on that. And it's, I think it's like, on the one hand, I was like, well, this is an obvious question. Why women? But the way that you answered it to me, I just think speaks to some of the most like systemic issues that we deal with. And we're the ones that it's like you said before, like your confidence and your validation can't come from external. You, you're the one that has to discover trust and give that trust in order to get to that next level. And it'll show up in a million different ways, depending on like where you're at. Like, what is your creative process? Because everything you're describing to me feels so unique, like so special, so underutilized that it is pure creativity and art as far as I'm concerned. But how do you kind of like tune into, do you create space for, for your creativity? Do you, do you have a creative process? Do you even think about it like that? Yes and no. I I do think I set the stage. And by that, I mean, I like to be 
and an aesthetically pleasing environment. And I like to be well-fed and hydrated and have my eight hours of sleep and exercise. Where's Taurus (laughs) in your chart? (laughs) Nowhere, nowhere. I am Gemini and a Leo rising and a Pisces moon. I'm like the most emotional. But I I would say my creative process actually had to do with my self-worth journey Uh because for a very, for much of my life, I hated myself and acted accordingly. And so I think doing a lot of inner work, doing a lot of the the spiritual work and really just allowing myself to get to know myself and realizing I'm not that horrible after all. <laughs> like I'm actually pretty fun and playful and can, you know, so so that journey has been a creative journey for me because I've been able to create out of it. So it's just been powerful, I think, to do the inner work, but also set the stage. But I don't like to bifurcate myself. And maybe it is the Gemini part of me, but I am not two-sided because I have a thousand layers. Yeah. But in order for me to not, you know, go absolutely off into another galaxy and not have my two feet on this earth... I have to think of myself as just me. I just go about being myself and that being is creative and that being is serious and playful and all the things at once. So I can't focus on developing a certain trait necessarily without abandoning all the other traits. So I try to just integrate it all and be one person. I think that's incredible awareness. And I think you just gave someone listening like massive permission as well. This is, I mean, what you're kind of describing to me feels, because I think of the energy of creativity and spirituality kind of like being on the spectrum and mm-hmm. that that interdimensional, multifaceted, layered aspect of ourself and our energy feels very, I mean, it feels very spiritual to me. And I think you mentioned spirituality in terms of your own development and growth and exploration and healing. How does like is spirituality part of your creative process or sort of part of your day-to-day or how do you identify with that concept? Absolutely. If at all. I definitely identify as a spiritual person. I do think that, you know, growing up in the deep South, there's very religious communities and I take bits and pieces from that and I struggle with different dogmas. And I also struggle with the very, the spiritual community in some ways, because I think it can, it it doesn't feel playful and light to me a lot of the time. It feels dogmatic and judgmental, which I'm trying to release all judgment of myself so that, so I don't, I don't really want to subscribe to a community of such. Yeah. So my spiritual is deep, it's deeply personal. I feel like I have relationships with the with people and worlds that have passed that have I, like, it's really interesting. I feel a deep connection to my intuition. I've always felt that I've always felt this knowing and I believe in something greater than me. So I would say that I'm spiritual, but it's not really, it's not a practice and it's not, it's just a way of life. And so I think that, you know, but, but also bringing in playfulness to it playfulness to my spirituality, but playfulness also to the businesses. Because I liked what you said, not to take this on a totally right turn, but I loved what you said about how businesses were starting to step up to the plate with realizing that diversity of thought and diversity of in all sorts is valuable to their bottom lines and to and and they're starting to do the things needed, like your business and the you know, paternity leave and all of those things. 
But when I view the companies that are doing that, they're kind of doing it in a playful way. It's like when they gave everybody unlimited vacation because they realized people were overworked and then nobody took their vacation and it kind of backfired. Like the companies are just trying it. Like they they know what's important to us and they're trying. Well, some of them, some of them are trying, but sometimes it doesn't work. So I kind of view my own spirituality as like that too. Like, here's my value. I'm going to try to align my actions to it. And if it doesn't work, then that was fun. <laughs> Let's move on to the next. So it's, I don't know if that answers your question. It totally does. And it, 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 it answered my next question. Cause I was going to ask you to describe like how playfulness can show up for you. And you did that beautifully. So thank you. Do you have like a day-to-day routine or practice or a way that you like set yourself up for success? I'm pretty religious about getting my nine hours of sleep because uh-huh. I really think my IQ decreases by multiple points when I'm not well rested. So that's really important. I definitely get my gallon of of waters. I think it's basically like, how can you, you know, be an adult and take care of your physical body? Because we do live in our physical bodies. And I don't know if it's my projector energy or the fact that my immune system is historically not the strongest. You know, you just have to take care of your self. And I think that plays into everything I do because that has to come first. And then it's just community. I'm an extrovert. I love my people. I, Mm. if I get depressed, I isolate and that's the worst thing for me. So it's almost to connect. And yes, the world is going digital and I love the work we do in our online communities. And that's so important, but so is touching somebody like some so is seeing being in somebody's energy and feeling that so I have to balance that out and I I think I do I have a wonderful circle of you know family and friends and relationships but that's really important to my creativity because otherwise I'll just turn into my little hermit self so well I mean I'd like because we talked a little bit before the call so intense cardio lots of sleep connection community and taking care of yourself in a way that feels fun and playful And not being dogmatic about it. Yeah, cool. Okay, I'm going to like, this is a completely random question, but kind of based on what you were saying, what are your thoughts on um, like remote work and or like a hybrid work situation or like being in an office? And and, because I mean, again, you're dealing with like some of the leaders in, in the global workplace. What are like, what trends are you seeing or how do you think? Cause like people are reaching out to me and being like, I can't go back to the office full time. Other people are like, I'm so isolated and overworked at home. I know my preference, but I'd be really curious what you see companies playing with and testing and what potentially like, maybe it, it, there isn't an across the board solution, but this is completely random and very self-serving. I'm just super curious what you think. I absolutely everything you said is true and I think it's deeply personal. I think the companies mm-hmm. that are stumbling a bit are the ones who are really fierce black and white about either or, who are not willing to take in somebody's personal experience because I do believe that each of us has a number of words that we're allocated every day (laughs) and we get to our number of words. And for some people that's 10 words. And for some people that like me who like to talk, that's a lot of words. So (laughs) I can do all of the talking for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You guys don't even need words. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So it's not even like an introvert, extrovert, you know, where you focus. I mean, I, some, I, I love people and want to be around people all the time, but if I need to do some sort of analytical thinking, I need to be a, alone and looking at my Excel spreadsheet. And 
I do think performance for companies who have allowed flexibility has increased drastically. I also think commercial real estate prices are astronomical. So it's hard for companies to say, work remote because you're performing better, but we're going to keep the space for the five people who love to come in or keep the space. So I don't think an answer has really been well thought out yet because the people who are demanding everybody come in are losing people and they will not get to keep the right talent. That's not the answer. But the people who get rid of their all, all of their space end up isolating those who do want to be part of the community. Yeah. And I think it adds to this. I think the, t- the length in which we stay with a company is decreasing steadily. Like the average time for a CFO to be in a seat is three years. And I think for you know, individuals earlier in their career in different industry, I don't know the exact statistic, but it's much shorter, like a year, two years, yeah. whatever it be. I want to talk to you about that too. Yeah. So That'll be my community. last question. But <laughs> Exactly. It, in, in my opinion, that's just, you quit because you don't feel like you're in a community. Yeah. You don't feel part of the team. And some people need to be in person to be part of the team. And maybe we can come up with a creative way to make them feel that from afar, but maybe not. So the other thing that people are certainly harassing me about, and I can't even imagine the like inquiries, like your inbox is just probably full of this, but right now it feels like you can leave your job and get a 20% pay raise, or you can stay in your job and get a three and a half percent pay raise. But like the flip side is, is every single business owner is complaining about that. They can't keep staff and they can't just give everybody 20% pay raises every six months. Like how do we balance that tension? I think a lot of that responsibility does fall on the like the people who are asking for the 20 and getting the three. Right. right. Because of some of the themes we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. When they get that three versus that 20 and they see everybody getting the 20, they be get resentful. Yeah. Getting resentful, it it's not good for the company. It's not good for the person. And it ultimately will, you know, have its consequences. I also think that if you're only motivated by your compensation and you go out to interview for other jobs because you're resentful. People who do do that usually are gone within six months because like energetically you move on. You're not part of that team anymore. You want to be part of somebody else's team. You're already, yeah. you know, you're already mentally gone. So, but I also think people get do not give enough credit to the goodwill and the trust that you earn by staying with an organization or people. Like the reason my business got an off it. To the ground in two weeks after I decided to do it full time was because my two women business partners who I worked with 15 years ago and stayed in touch with and built trust with and worked for in them investing in me. And so without those longevity of connections in your network, like you're, you're setting yourself up not perfectly if you are constantly separating those ties for that 20% raise. So I think the medium is you have to kind of have a long game approach. You have to go to your company being like, listen, I am feeling antsy because I know that I could get 20% elsewhere. I know that's not good for the business, but I'm feeling uncomfortable. Can we make a plan over the next 18 months to two years to get me up to market? That was so fucking good, Sarah, because... What like the argument is, is like your company doesn't give a fuck about you and like the corporate doesn't care, but like your boss, your manager does and your team. And that's what I've seen like entire like teams 
move with each other, especially in tech, healthcare, business to business services, SaaS services, which is tech, but like, yeah, you'll see one person go and then they just hire everybody they used to work with. And then they get a raise and then they hire, they bring everybody with them and on their team. And so I, I love that perspective and that humanizing it and bringing it back to that connection. And I know we're wrapping up here and I have like a thousand hundred million questions for you, but I also know after people hear this, they're going to reach out to you. Are like, if someone wants to work with you, do you have a right person? Can they email you? What's your website? Like how can people kind of follow up? I don't, I don't know exactly what you're offering or if you're even offering, I think people will hear this and be like, oh, well, if I don't make $40 million a year, maybe Sarah's not the right person for me. That may or may not be true. What do you want people to to take away from this? And, and if and how can they get in touch with you and when? Absolutely. And I would love to hear from people. And my goal is to build this community and ecosystem so that I can start to make introductions and I can start to to answer the questions that people want to answer. So I'd say the, the most logical way right now to get in touch with me is, is through my Instagram account, which now that I'm not in the corporate world, I am allowed to actually participate in. So I will be on there much more frequently and available. And it's Sarah.yarling is my handle. And in the back end, my website is being built and the offerings are being built while I you know, currently service my existing clients. So I think right now it's just get in touch. I, yeah, I we'll want put to hear all from those, the people. We'll put all those links as well because by the time this comes out, your website will probably be ready. Um, sure. So, so anyone can reach out to you, DM you on Instagram, get DM onto your me. website and let's start having these conversations because it's the access and the information that is going to create that success that you've seen at the top tiered jobs and companies in the world. So that's so exciting. Thank you so much for creating this. Thank you for creating this industry and this opportunity that has never existed before. That is so exciting. I am well, so thank impressed you for talking about it with me. Oh my God. Obviously I'm I get you lit up. so much about it. <laughs> Excellent. Um, well, yeah. So and fun. I would love to catch up with you. Like, well, maybe we do this again in a year and just see where you're at and what's happening. And you can give us some intel in terms of the, yes. the women that are kicking ass all around the world. That sounds like a plan. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. 